0: Yeah. So, uh, so I guess I'll pull up the chair since I don't have a podium. Um, so today I just wanted to do a little bit of uh, opportunity for open discussion, questions, anything like that. Um, and then next Sunday we'll start doing theology one hundred and one, going through page by page through the liturgy, and that will likely take a couple of weeks, maybe even more than that. <laughs> Um, So, any observations or thoughts about the Epistle, the Gospel, the homily, St. Porphyrius? Any questions before I just start talking more? Anything? So, what were the five traits of the blind man? (laughs) There we go. Uh, Vigilance. Persistence. Discernment. Humility and having a singular focus on Christ. What is the difference between persistence and vigilance? Vigilance means you're looking. Persistence means you're you're trying. Do you see the difference? So there's an action. There's more of an action with it. Persistence means I am going after something. And um, and persistence is actually an important word when we talk about love. Because um, the way that the church talks about God's love is with the word eros. They use agape too, and also philia, but um, eros is is very commonly used, especially in the writings of St. Porphyrios. This is called Wounded by Love, and it's ananthropis eros. Eros is the word for for this. And this comes from a hymn to St. Hilarion, also from a number of the female martyrs, they mention this, but in a number of the hymns they talk about being wounded by divine love, or wounded by love. Um, and so, when we talk about Eros, there's a pursuit. There's a persistence. So, we don't have Eros first, God first has Eros for us. So his love is is a love that is pursuant. A love that is Pushing forward, driving, never relenting, he will not stop pursuing us ever. So that's God's love toward us—is this eros, where He is, and divine eros is what is described as because it's God. And so, oh, that's quieter. Um, so uh, eros is uh, is a love that is persistent. Okay? So, in um, being icons of Christ, our love, likewise, is that love towards God. Or that's our goal, is to have that kind of love. And that's where some of these passages, talking about Christ the bridegroom, and talking about in our, um, our communion hymns, about the, the bridal chamber, um, these things are very intimate, are they not? <laughs> When I say eros, when we talk about the bridegroom, because the the intimacy of the love is that deep and deeper. Um, Our problem is that we're all wrapped up in all of the carnal stuff and physical and sexuality when we think of eros, and that's all the wrong thing. But that pursuance driving love that is unrelenting, that that is what Eros is. And that is what God's love for us is. So any sense that we ever have of God being absent or God not caring or any of those kinds of things, those would all be properly understood theologically as just sort of descriptions of our own turning away from God. God's not turning away from us. I know we have that sort of descriptive language within the Bible, but it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's our turning away from God that gives that sensation of God turning away from us, because the resulting feeling is the same either way. But God is just relentlessly pursuing us. He's pursuing us in our virtues. He's pursuing us in our sins. He's pursuing us in horrible situations. He's pursuing us in good situations. He's pursuing us in everything. So that's God. So uh, persistence is, a, is a, a, a part of that. Is that, and also when we think about it for ourselves, why should we be persistent, or why is persistence required? Persistence also implies what? What's the, the other side of it? What? Well, yeah, persistence versus complacence, but persistence implies a struggle. And you can't have a struggle unless there is some opposition. So persistence also describes the fact that we do have real opposition against our uniting ourselves with Christ. So it takes persistence because we have all kinds of snares and traps along the way. So, does that describe persistence enough? Yes? Yeah. And so, I think a lot of times, you know, in family life, you know, or maybe a set of you feel like, you know, you're trying to get that other person to love you. And so, can you kind of talk about that? And then also kind of with the persistence, that, you know, like, it's like, how persistent, or in what way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, that's the thing, is the persistence is us outward. The persistence is not requiring something in return. So God's love requires nothing of us. We could absolutely, utterly reject him every moment of our life, for our entire lives, and that would not change his love for each of us individually. wouldn't change it. So um, when we're talking about our loved ones, oftentimes we want a response. And that response shows our own limitations of love. Because love with any sort of... um, requirements, any sort of expectations, any sort of minimum standards, is not full and true and complete love. So love has no expectations. And that's what we learn from God, most and, first and foremost. So uh, when we have our loved ones around us, it, our, our love is our movement outwards. So it has nothing to do with their response. Their response is their love. So they may not love us. And that's very real, and that happens even moment to moment within a family network, where there are moments where, like, my children might feel like I hate him. And then that turns, and then they love us. And so, But that's their, their part of it. So then my part of it, if I am to emulate Christ, is to be consistent in my uh, relentless pursuit of them with no expectations in a selfless way. So, a high bar. But that's what we're we're striving towards. It's not as though we fail if we don't do that, because then we're all failures. So that's not the point. The point is that we're striving towards that, that. We see the goal is way up here, and that's my goal. We don't say as Christians, oh, well, you know, just be a good person, be nice to people, and love them, whatever that means. The goal is not low at all. The goal is very high. And so we will fail, and that's fine. It doesn't mean that the the failure is fine, but the fact that we failed is expected. And so we just get up and pursue it again. So I think of this with parenting. It's very hard to love with no conditions. So, because we also we have to raise them, and we have to teach them things, but that 's separate our role of raising them and teaching them, and all of this and raising them in the faith that 's separate from our love they 're interwoven, but we can 't say that our love is dependent upon their uh, following good behavior, acting well, or all of those things, like that uh, that whole thing of being of being beggars for love it was he said. It's egotism on our part to wish for others to speak to us politely. If they don't, we shouldn't be upset. Let them speak to us as they wish. We needn't become beggars for love. Because what what is going on when we are offended by the way someone speaks to us? What's actually going on there? What? Our ego. Our pride. I don't deserve to be talked to like that. I don't deserve to be treated like that. What is that? says who? Why? Christ didn't deserve anything he got treated as. None of it he deserved. So if he's our example, then that's pretty clear. So we have to think of all of these things as spiritual darts being shot at us. And we just have to let it pass right by. Not become a target. So, yeah, yeah. huh. the children uh-huh. you yeah. parent Right. So how do we do that without ego? <laughs> That's the hard part, because most often what it is is, I shouldn't be spoken to that way. My son should not speak to me that way. That's all ego. Now, if I say, my son needs to learn the proper way to speak. And I am totally dispassionate, then my response would be different. My response would be I would say to him, son, that's not the way that we talk to people. We need to talk in a different way. But how can I do that with my ego completely set aside? Very difficult. Because I, we get fired up by those things. Yeah. When we demand love, yeah. It's my experience you it's actually not love. It's not. That's that's the thing of it. That's the thing. That's why I you know, I don't want to be too extreme, but love with any expectations isn't love. It's not. Because if it's an expectation, then it says you only get this if fill in the blank with whatever it may be, then it's compulsion. Either it's servitude or slavery. Servitude, because I give you the option, do it and I'll give you a good response, don't do it and you'll get a bad response. Or slavery, I say, you have to do it. But that's what it is. Or manipulation. Yeah, some, some form of manipulating to make them into a servant or a slave. And the, this is, uh, I've spoken about this before, but this is how we most often want God to be. We want God to be the God of servants and slaves. Where he tells us what to do, we do the good thing and we get our reward, or we do the bad thing and we know what our punishment is going to be. But that's not what God wants. We use the word servant, like I say I'm the servant of God. I use that word because I am showing my submission to God, but that's a willing submission. God does not say, be my slaves, be my servants. What does he want us to be? Sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters of Christ. So there's no compulsion in that. So. Any other questions? Yeah. Doesn't he say, well done, good servant? Yeah, that's right. But it's like a reward for the person who has not enough money. In other words, we feel that we want to give the most that we can. Yeah. Exactly. We desire that. Yeah, and so in, um, yeah, and I don't want to be too extreme about it, but um, so in that parable, that's a perfect example. In that parable, what it shows is our own desire to do what is pleasing to our master. And that's where the parable can be stuck as a parable and not be the fullness of our relationship with God because, of course, in the parable, they're required to work for him. That's just the nature of the, the equation. So we are not required to work for God. We're not required to do anything for God. It is our free will that we choose to do that. In, in doing that, we become servants of God. We become, you can even say slaves of God, but in English, slave is the wrong word because slave always means there's no choice. So we'd be careful with that word. But at least servants. We, in, in humility and in our love for God, we become servants of God. So, but it's not compulsion. Yeah. 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 Let's I can't name. Oh, let's practice that. Ready? No. Porphyrios. <laughs> now, we, we can all get this. Ready? Porphyrios. is four syllables. I won't have you say Kofsakalivia. Just Porphyrios, but yeah, Saint Porphyrios, but. ahead. What, the the thing before, when you, when you said big, you, know, you didn't hear critical, or anything, the, the saint? Ah, so the question was what brought Saint Porphyrios into the limelight? So um, Saint. Porphyrios, because he was placed in that role of being the chaplain at this major hospital in Athens, and it was from 1940 to 1973. So all through the war, through the civil war, through all kinds of things. Because he was there at that time and already had been a seasoned monk on Mount Athos, had been ordained as a deacon and then a priest and then as a confessor, had been hearing confessions. Because of that role there, Many people encountered him, and so there are many miracles about Saint um, Porphyrios. Um, whole books of them, and uh, both in his life and and after his falling asleep. Um, but really, that that was the the time and place where so many people interacted with him, and then that sort of extended to when he was living at the monastery in Milici that he founded. Um, And he was only back on Mount Athos for the last couple of years before his falling asleep. So it was all during those times where he became someone that he heard confessions constantly. He had people coming to him all the time. So, uh, just a little miracle that I I read about uh, recently, a a couple days ago, in preparing for this. He uh, and uh, Elder Sophroni of the monastery in Essex, who's the spiritual child of St. Silouan of Mount Athos. uh, Elder Sophroni and and Father Porphyrios, they wanted to meet, they wanted to get together. They were both well advanced in years. This was in the, the 80s, I believe. And, um, and so St. Porphyra said, I can't come there, but if you can ever come to Greece. Otherwise, if not, let's meet in prayer on this day at this time. And then he said the time in English time as well. And they did. And so they actually continued that, and they would meet through prayer, by praying together at a particular time. They knew what each other looked like in a spiritual way. They never met each other. So yeah. <laughs> The questions? Yeah. So during the homily, like the Gospel talking about where Christ said, Your faith is guilty. Uh-huh. So, how would we, because you have other Christian traditions who say, All you need is faith? Yeah. So you don't need all those other things that we spoke about. How would so, I'll, you? Oh, describe it. How would we be able to say, communicate that? Yeah. So the question is about in the gospel it says your faith has saved you or your faith has made you well. Um, And the question is when we have so many Christians out there of different stripes who are saying all it takes is faith and faith without works especially is a a common refrain. um, How do we describe what that means when we in orthodoxy understand faith to mean all the things that we're doing as well? So the word faith has action within it, and that's why I often like to describe it as faithfulness. So um, it's the same word in Greek for faith and belief, and belief is even more amorphous in English. Like, what does it mean? I believe. I believe the Red Sox are going to win the World Series. You know, that's that's we can use that word. So um, when we think of the word faithfulness. We think there is a fidelity with that. And that's what we get in Greek. I mean, in Latin, fidelity, fidelis. So, um, what does it mean to have fidelity? What does it mean to have faithfulness? It means that it's proven and shown in the way that we act and live our life. It could be fidelity to anything. I've shown my fidelity again to the Red Sox by how? not just saying I root for the Red Sox, let's say I'm giving an example, but I go to games, I watch their games, I hear about the trades, I know who all the players are. That's showing fidelity to the team. So uh, that's what it means when we you say your faith has saved you. It's it's the um, what has been shown through the actions of the person reveals what exists inside. That thing called faith Is is shown through everything that's done, and that's why it's a really pointless dichotomy between faith and works. Saint James is very clear about that. Read the epistle of Saint James. You know, show me your faith without works. You can't do that. You can't show faith without works. Otherwise, we're talking about lip service. We're talking about saying some words and that's it. So, so faith is uh, the proof is in the pudding. So and we see this in other, to use analogies, you know, I don't recommend arguing with other people, but if you're in a conversation with someone and they're trying to understand this, you just, the proof is in the pudding. Think about any other job out there, any other thing that you do. How do you prove that you're uh, faithful to being a firefighter? You show up at work. You prepare, you take your training, you are alert, you're not on narcotics, you're whatever it may be. You know, you can describe all those things. So that's what shows because I can say, oh, I'm a firefighter but what does it mean unless I'm actually doing all those things? So it's a semantic game. It becomes like a yeah, lip service. So, yeah? Can you say that space is also a book? Or maybe space is very they can you forever, like, you're at children some are more inclined to yeah. yeah. or you know faith yeah so, that that is for... yeah, so um, the faith is absolutely a gift and so we have to get back to the equation that, that synergy between God and man there's a quote in here I, I couldn't find it right now but he said our portion is a millionth of a millionth that's what we do And God does everything else. So um, our portion is very important, but it's very tiny. So for anything, whether it's faith or love or uh, virtue or any of those things, fill in the blank, those are gifts from God. The good news with that, because like you think, you look at your children, and you might be thinking, "Oh my gosh, what's going to happen?" This one here seems so faithful. And this one over here is fighting me already about going to church. Do you have any of those fears? Yeah. Okay. So um, the the good thing to remember is that God knows all of that, and God gives the gifts, and so it's not like He's going to give gifts to someone and say, "Ha oh, ha, look, this person's better. They're going to heaven, and this person's not." So he gives the gifts. That child is now accountable for that. So it's not... We have to get away from... Constantly push away from any sort of legal, juridical understanding of judgment. Have to get away from that. Okay? Because we are judged on where we started and where we ended. And only God knows the depths of our soul and heart to know what that is. So for one child that may outwardly appear to be more religious, then we can say, yeah, there's some gift there. And we can say, may God bless that. But it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, another one is... And, And likewise, we can multiply this around the community here. We can say, oh, I see that person in church who seems so religious. Well, God gave them a gift. So we all are striving equally and we're all going after the same goal and we all started in a different place and we'll end in a different place. But we're all striving for one goal. And that goal is impossibly high but we keep on striving for, towards it. So, and God is the one at the end who sees the ways in which we showed our fidelity, our faithfulness to Him. So, because every gift that's given is also held accountable. Not in a harsh or unloving way, but just simply, you had something. What did you do with it? So, yeah. Lois, and then John. I remember in your sermon, you, just and you said um, there were followers that were following Jesus everywhere. Mm-hmm. And people, and, yeah. and the blinders, who had ears, and spiritual eyes that could reach for him. Yeah. Yeah, these are the same people the very next passage is the story of Zacchaeus. So he's coming into Jerusalem there's a the blind man and everyone's shushing the blind man and then they get into Jerusalem and there's Zacchaeus and all the people are saying oh, he's going in to stay with a sinner. These are his followers. Quote unquote followers. Of course these are not the disciples saying that. And there were faithful people within that group but these are the people that are actually traveling around city to city with him because some of them are doing it for novelty. Some of them are doing it to say, well, what's going to happen next? And we saw at the end of the gospel passage what happens. They're all glorifying and praising God because of this miracle. Could have been the exact same people that were shushing him. So, yeah. What were you going to say, John? So your comment about the millions and the millions reminds me of the the gospel passage where Christ goes into a town and he wasn't able to work miracles because their faith was not Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So, with the one iota of faith, which is why we can't despair, we have to, we have to work at our faith, mm-hmm. right? So that he can then pull the lion's share, yeah. but it requires that iota. Yeah. yeah, and we continually put that tiny bit in. So, yeah. Yeah, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? This is what our Lord said. So, any other questions, comments? I can read you some more St. Porphyrios. How much time do we have? we got time. Okay. Let's assume, for example, that we have a radio. This is the wonderful thing about St. Porphyrios and St. Paisios, is they use contemporary examples. Although radio is not getting contemporary anymore. <laughs> uh, let's assume you turn on the satellite radio. <laughs> When we turn the position to position one in the direction of the greatest number of transmitters, we hear the program loud and clear. At position two, there aren't so many transmitters, and so the signal is somewhat less clear. You think of it like on a radio dial, it gets in fuzzy and more clear. And at position three, the program is virtually inaudible. The same is true for our communication with God. When our soul is turned facing direction one, communication is excellent. And that is due, of course, to two basic prerequisites, love and humility. With those prerequisites, the soul communicates with God, hears his voice, and accepts his word. It receives strength and divine grace and is transfigured. By the way, the, the quote on uh, that's often on St. Paisios' icons is, the frequency through which God works is... It's either love or humility. I'm trying to remember which one it is. The frequency through which God works. I'm pretty sure it's humility. But uh, it's almost a direct quote that St. Porphyrius is saying. And the two are totally unrelated people. So. <clears throat> it turns, uh, the soul turns toward God in a natural way and feels compunction. When there is less love and humility, our position two, we have a correspondingly inferior communication with God. When our soul assumes position three, communication breaks down almost completely because we are filled with passions, hatreds, and enmities, and our soul cannot ascend. So he mentioned about feeling compunction. And compunction is... um, What is compunction? Compunction. Remorse? Is that along the lines of remorse? Along the lines of remorse. It's an aspect of our repentance, right? And, um... It doesn't have to be remorse, it can be just that uh, conscience. We feel a motivation to do the right thing. Yeah, it's, well, but it's, it's, the compunction is that we've done wrong. That we've done wrong. Done wrong. So we think of the word compunction. And where does that come from? Pierce. Puncture. We feel pierced. So that's that's exactly what compunction is. And I'm trying to flip through here quickly to find... He actually goes into the Greek verb, which is exactly the same. It comes from the same root. It's the, the, the same word when they say the soldier's pierced his side... It's the same verb in Greek as compunction. And I will find it as quickly as I can. But um, it's that piercing. and, And how does that relate to love and humility? There we go. How does that relate to love and humility? So humility is to recognize we do a lot of bad things. We do a lot of wrong things. That's humility. Who am I compared to these people around me? Who am I? Okay. And it's not even necessarily in comparison. That gets dangerous. But it's just, I'm but dust and ashes. That's humility. And then if we have the love in there as well, the love of God, then we have that pain of heart. That's the compunction. I have let down the one whom I love. And, of course, we don't want to get too specific with that to say God is let down. He's... You know, at a distance, or that language is there because why? Because that's the sensation we have because of our recognition of our own sinfulness. So here's what he says. Compunction is a sacred suffering. You suffer without straining yourself. I explain everything, I'll everything. i explain everything through Holy Scripture. Quote, But one of the soldiers punctured his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. The soldier pierced his side with the spearhead and made a wound. The root of the word, katanixis, compunction, is the verb, mito, to puncture or pierce. Katamito, to stab or wound repeatedly. And when the word is used in relation to the soul, to feel compunction means that I am wounded over and over again by the love of God. Another verb meaning to wound is katatriskopo, as in the hymn which says, I have been wounded by your love. So now we're back to this exact same word. Wounding and compunction come from the same root in, in Greek. And in the Song of Songs, we read, I have charged you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the powers and virtues of the field. If you should find my beloved, what shall you say to him? That I am wounded with love. That is, the bride who is looking to find Christ the bridegroom says, I am deeply wounded by my love for him. How can I forget him? How shall I live without him? I suffer deeply when he is distant from me. Compunction, therefore, is a deep pain, a sacred suffering. As you're talking about this I had a kind of like uh yeah. the great light. Oh, look at all those sins I have. It's like, oh man. And so that love and that that light and that purity of God coming up kind of shows you where you're at and it's kinda conf Yeah. It is. It pierces us. What were you going to say, Joseph? So, that, that bit that you read right there made me think a little bit more about how Orthodox 1-1 started when we were talking about the word love and different kinds of love that were. Mm-hmm. And it made me think more of um, the passage in the Bible where this is after Jesus had risen. And he's talking to Peter. And he asks him over and over again, do you love him? Yeah. And i heard, I don't remember if this is, yeah. Yeah. It's a word of love. Yeah. Different from the usage? Yeah. So in, in, in the gospel passage after Christ's resurrection, when he says the threefold, Do you love me, Peter? In the Greek, it's not eros, but he says agapazme. So it's agape. Mm-hmm. And Peter responds, Philose. I love you like a friend. And then our Lord says again, agapazme. Uh, uh, agapasme, do you love me? With that deep love, the love that we have in families and in relationships. And he says, Philose. And the third time, our Lord says, Philisme. So he condescends to the type of love that Peter is describing. And that's why Peter is grieved. Because he realizes... But our Lord has condescended to where he's at. He couldn't say sagapo uh, or whatever it would be in New Testament Greek. So instead he asks him that third time with that inferior love or the love of camaraderie, friendship. So, yeah. Yeah. Time. Oh, we're almost there. we got about two more minutes. So I'll finish with one quote. And actually, for those of you who came in late, shame on you. No. (laughs) Uh, But we were talking about at the beginning about eros. Because when this says wounded by love, it's an anthropis eros. So it's, uh, ananthropis means divine love. So it's actually wounded by divine love. And that love is eros, which gets back to the word I used to describe the blind man, the persistence. God's love is a love that is driving, persisting, unrelenting. That's what eros is described as. And that's what in many of our church hymns, sometimes it's just uh, translated as divine love. Like in our communion hymn, it says divine love. It's divine eros. In another translation, they use the word eros. So I'll finish with one last quote. The easy path of the spiritual life. God has placed a power in man's soul. But it is up to him how he channels it, for good or for evil. If we imagine the good as a garden full of flowers, trees, and plants, and the evil as weeds and thorns, and the power as water, then what can happen is as follows. When the water is directed toward the flower garden, then all the plants grow, blossom, and bear fruit. And at the same time, the weeds and thorns, because they are not being watered, wither and die. And the opposite, of course, can also happen. It is not necessary, therefore, to concern yourselves with the weeds. Don't occupy yourself with rooting out evil. Christ does not wish us to occupy ourselves with the passions, but with the opposite. Channel the water, that is, all the strength of your soul, to the flowers, and you will enjoy their beauty, their fragrance, and their freshness. The flowers being the virtues, the opposite of the passions. You won't become saints by hounding after evil. Ignore evil. Look towards Christ and He will save you. Instead of standing outside the door shooing the evil one away, treat Him with disdain. If evil approaches from one direction, then calmly turn in the opposite direction. If evil comes to assault you, turn all your inner strength to good, to Christ. Pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. He knows how and in what way to have mercy on you. And when you have filled yourself with good, don't turn any more towards evil. In this way you become good on your own with the grace of God. Where can evil then find a foothold? It disappears. Of course, it's not as easy and simple as that, but it's, the, the point is very prudent. I think of the homily of St. John Chrysostom and Pascha, which is, death, where is your sting? Hades has been conquered. The evil one has com- been completely made captive. But when we're in the midst of the spiritual warfare, it seems like we are completely overpowered by this. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And this is the path. Let us pray. For the prayers of St. Porphyrios and of all your holy ones, O oh Christ our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Thank you.